You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Jam DeMatteis, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is The Defenders, volume, sorry, episode 7, covering a period of Defenders from 1982 to 1983. Uh, My name is Curtis Findlay. And I am your Defenders co-host, Jason Schaff. And this is transitional volume between volume six and volume eight there's really a a, pretty much every main character in this book goes through some sort of transformation and the ones that don't did it in in the last volume absolutely um this is a strange time a very it seems like a very experimental time as well with the defenders you get some really big arcs yeah. They're going to have some pretty massive effects upon some of the stories coming out of this, not only for the Defenders, but also for Squadron Supreme. You get some odd characters added into the book at this time. Yeah, I think we'll cover one in particular uh, with the Overmind. We get some looking backwards to some of the unresolved plot threads of the past. Some of them dating way, way back. Yes. One of the biggest head scratchers uh, gets revisited and uh, we, we can we could talk about whether it was a good closing of that one or not <laughs> okay <laughs> as we go forward sure i would also say that there's there's really a few themes that it, it, on the surface it looks like there's a lot of random directions that the title is going here but there's really a couple of uh, a few themes that i think we can focus on number one is that J.M.D. Mateus is focusing on the personal with these characters. He's taking time out of the big arcs periodically to really give us a look into what makes these characters ticks, and in some cases, put them away. Send them off to pasture, so to say, at least a comic book pasture, yeah. which is never long. Within the personal touch, another theme that's going to come out of this is love stories. Demetrius seems to be a bit of a softy at this period, and there's going to be a lot of, a lot of love in the air for these characters. We're also yeah. getting a move from the old Defenders, inching towards what's going to be called the new Defenders, which was the last piece of the run. Oh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, one thing that we can talk about is that we have consistent art team in Don Perlin. Unfortunately, the inks are going to be wildly inconsistent. That's there's going to be sure. some highlights. Yeah, there's going to be some highlights, but there's going to be some lowlights. Yeah. Um, and we also get a consistent writing team in J.M. DiMatteis, who I think is fantastic. I can't say enough good things about this guy. Yeah. So it's really neat to see. I think it's like something like uh, 30 issues in a row for Don Perlin 
and Demetrius together. Yeah. Because they, they did pretty much the entire previous volume as well. It did. And the working together, and quite often, I guess according to the Marvel way, Perlin is even contributing in the plotting and giving credit for it. Right. So you do have a consistent vision for the book, even though the book seems feels a little scattered at points. Those themes I just mentioned before, at least I feel, and hopefully we'll see if, if you feel the same way, Curtis, as we go on, um, kind of unites the book or at least tie the book together with at least a consistent vision going forward. I think so. And I think the biggest, uh, the biggest theme that I took away from this book is identity. Whether it's mm. in relationships or love or the team itself or individually, every single issue in this book, every single one deals with the identity of a character, the character or the team trying to figure out who they are or what they are. That's a fantastic observation, especially considering that this is supposed to be the book. The Defenders was always the non-team team. Yeah. Uh, so it's supposed to be, in its first incarnation, just a bunch of random characters kind of coming together, but not really associating. But as we're seeing now, as we're in the later part of the run of the title, that's not quite what it is anymore. Because now it's starting to become almost a surrogate family, which is going to be something that they really focus on. I mean, there's even a Thanksgiving scene in these issues where the whole group is coming together to celebrate as a family. And I think that kind of thing is inevitable when you hang out for people and have such close encounters and, and adventures such as these people, you can't help but be family. That's the basis of, of X-Men and Fantastic Four and even Avengers, um, even as their roster changes over and over again. And so they say that they're a non-team, but when you you just come in and then you stick around, you're going to form these bonds with people whether you like it or not. Yeah. And even some of the characters who don't do well at forming bonds, let's say the Hulk, for example, even he shows these signs of a real genuine affection for some of the other people. Absolutely. Be it his nicknames or just how he expresses a certain level of comfort Although, if I were some of the teammates, I wouldn't be as quite as comfortable <laughs> as Hulk seems to be. Well, the Hulk is loyal. Yes. If you're nice to him, he'll do anything for you. And the Hulk level of comfort is something. Yeah. It's <laughs> especially interesting. So, yeah, this is, uh, is going to be an exciting bit of comic book talk that we're going to jump into here. So, which issues are we covering in this book? Okay, so we're going to be starting off with the Defenders issue 110 from... August of 1982, we're going to ride the Defenders all the way to the Defenders 125, which is where we start getting this new Defenders. Um, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. And that ends in November of 1983. We also have one pit stop along the way, and that is Avengers Annual 11 from 1982, which is going to feature a very classic uh, Defenders villain. And one of my personal favorites. It's not even that much of a pit stop because it's still written by J.M. DiMatteis and drawn by Don Perlin. Oh, no, sorry, not, not by Al Don Milgram. Perlin. Oh, yeah, Al Milgram, that's right. It's, yeah. But it's still written by J.M. DiMatteis. Yeah, and it feels very much at peace within the uh, timeline. They even make allusion or, or uh, yeah, allusion to where this fits within the Defenders timeline. So it's, it's, it's at peace. So what are the things that we need to know 
uh, from the last volume before jumping into this one. First of all, let me say that if you are trying to read this volume uh, just without any previous Defender's knowledge, you're probably making a mistake. You should go back to the beginning of volume six. Uh, that's a good jumping on point. But having said that, what are the things that we need to know um, before going into this book? All right. So early on in this book, we have a couple of things, threads that need to be tied up. The first one is going to be right off the bat. We're going to be jumping into issue 110, which features kind of a, a closing story for the character of Devil Slayer. Um, and so we'll, we'll get into him. But additionally to that, there's some lingering plot threads hanging from the Hell on Earth uh, saga that had taken place roughly around Defenders 100. And it, at the back end of that, we had Patsy Walker Hellcat hinted at by Satan uh, that she was this, his daughter and therefore the sister of the son of Satan, which made for some really Awkward. uncomfortable, <laughs> <laughs> uncomfortable yeah. romance scenes. So we have that lingering over. Um, we still have the core group of people that have been there for quite some time, almost from the beginning. Doctor Strange, the Hulk um, are there, although they're not going to stay with us the whole ride. Valkyrie, who came in, I believe, issue one or issue four, she is the most consistent presence within the Defenders from start to finish, and she's going to be with us the whole way. Although... This version of Valkyrie is now a different one from the one that we started with. What we started with was Barbara Norris, who was a, a mortal who had the spirit of Valkyrie placed inside of her. That has That is no longer the case. Now it is Valkyrie, the Asgardian maiden of the dead, who is there. And so we have a new voice and presence, and that has to be resolved within the book. Yeah. Doctor Strange is here. And so... These are some of the, the, the carryovers that we're going to be wrestling with as we kind of adventure forward. So I forgot to tell our listeners to give the comments on, on this issue. So I don't have uh, any listener comments to share in this episode. Uh, my mistake. I'll remember to do that for the next episode. But I do have a Twitter poll. I said... Which classic Defenders lineup do you like the best? And my options were uh, the founding members, Doctor Strange, Namor, Hulk, and Silver Surfer. Uh, the 70s recruits, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, Son of Satan, Hellcat, etc. Uh, the 80s recruits like Gargoyle, Beast, Overmind, etc. Or the new Defenders, Iceman, Moondragon, Cloud, and Angel, etc. What would you say, Jason? I would have to go with the originals. Um, I have a lot of love. So I'm, I'm parsing this very thin. <laughs> I have a lot of love for the 80s characters. Gargoyle, I've, I've grown to have a lot of affection for. The 70s characters I'm not as strong with, mostly because Nighthawk, and we're going to talk about him, he's another one of these legacies or these characters that some of the effects of the previous volume are, are going to be played with or, or toyed with in this one. I'll, I'll, we'll speak about that a bit in a bit. Yep. I can't stand Nighthawk. <laughs> as, I, as I talked with you uh, last time, Curtis, um, I stand separate from many of my Defenders brethren in that they love him. I'm not a fan. I always found him quite whiny. 
But also in the 70s, we had, and we have this a little bit with Hellcat. This is one of my problems with this title, is that you have characters like the Red Guardian and Hellcat, these female characters, who really bring nothing to the action. Um, and Red Guardian is terrible in this regard, that she is, she's, she's kind of pointless. Hellcat brings a lot of heart to the team, so at least she has that to add into it. But nobody seemed to be able to handle the writing duties for the Red Guardian before, so I, I just can't, I can't get on board with the 70s in that sense. But the original four um, characters are so iconic, it's hard not yeah. to... Uh, well, and then Valkyrie kind of joined the mix with what, like issue four or something like that. So she's pretty much a founding member as well. You could kind of loop her in there or lump her Absolutely. in there. Uh, let's see. Well, I would, you know, I would have to say, and this is strictly because I haven't read the early Defender stuff, because my introduction to the event, to the Defenders is what we have been talking about here. So I really like the 70s recruits like Valkyrie, Nighthawk, Son of Satan, Hellcat. I think these characters are really neat. Um, it, it's a very interesting mix. They have good dynamics with each other. So I'm I'm a fan of this. I, I do like Gargoyle as well. But as we move further into the new Defenders, I be, find myself becoming less enthusiastic about the 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 additions uh, and the people that are leaving. You're not alone in that. Um, most fans of the Defenders do not like uh, that last team okay. where you have so many of the X throw the X-Men, off yeah. or cast off. X-Men characters. (laughs) Moon Dragon always rubs people the wrong way, even though she's one of my personal favorites. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people don't don't particularly care for that run. But when I revisited the title last year, I found there's actually a lot to love in that run. So I look forward to when you and I finally get to that part of it too, because there are some some gems, some real gems in that in that run that are really quite interesting and, and some character dynamics that are that are also really, really well played out. Well, here's how the the listeners voted on this. Um, 11% voted for the new Defenders. So, like you said, they took the bottom spot. I'm surprised they got that many. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 13% uh, chose the 80s recruits. 37% uh, picked the founding members. And then 39% of the votes went to the 70s, the 1970s recruits. 39%? Wow, I'm, I'm, I'm really surprised the 70s recruits took it. There was actually uh, some good discussion in the comments. People, people did have... Uh, it, it's because of the non-team aspect, you can't really classify these different eras quite by decade or anything like that because people are always coming and going or coming back. And, and so, so, so it's hard to pick just one sort of lump sum, but I tried to get people to do their best. <laughs> Job well done, sir. Yep. Let's dig into our issues here. We can start with issue number 110. This one's called Hunger. This was a very odd issue to start this book because it drops us right in the middle of a story that I didn't even really know was going on at the time. Because in the previous volume, Devil Slayer has had this bond with this guy that he had met recently, um... Oh man, what's his name? Sunny. He goes by Sunny. Sunshine. Sunshine. And he Sunshine died. Devil Slayer took a lot of that on himself. And so now he is in the dark dimension. I think they call it the negative zone here. 
and yeah. is having sort of an existential crisis. He's this is the when I was saying identity is a big theme in this book. He's trying to figure out his place in the world through this through this one issue. Mm. He travels through different times in his past to revisit who he was um, before he became Devil Slayer, and he even tries to confront the person who sort of turned him into Devil Slayer. And eventually, he meets up with his ex-wife, and they sort of make amends, and he quits being Devil Slayer in the end of this issue. It's a, it's quite quite a actually a very emotional issue. It really, really is. And even some of the dialogue is just really harsh. So he's trying to come back. First of all, Devil Slayer, just to give you kind of an overview, he's a Vietnam vet, had a terrible experience in Vietnam, comes back with all this post-traumatic stress disorder. He ends up then kind of coming into the powers after being a hitman. He's a guy who's very much haunted by his own personal demons. When it came to this character, Sunshine, this is one of the most heartbreaking stories from the last book. Because Sunshine is this, this hippie that never quite got past 1969. He was first found by Devil Slayer, a drug addict, living in a, in, in a hovel, um, wearing his Grateful Dead shirt. and just looks like a mess. Um, Devil Slayer tries to take him on, tries to raise him up. The idea of projecting or externalizing the redemption that he seeks within himself upon Sunshine as a means to you know, redeem Sunshine. Therefore, you can kind of feel at peace. But it doesn't work because Sunshine is killed. And not even killed in a glorious fashion in the previous book. Yeah. He kind of just dies a very sad death. And so when 110 picks up, here's Devil Slayer. He's devastated by this. Uh, he's racked with guilt. The self-pity is over him. And this is why he keeps vid- trying to visit people from his past. And he wants them to kind of damn him. It's, at least it reads that way to, to me. And they're not doing it. They, they won't take on his own guilt. Like, for example, when he comes and faces Carlo Bocchino, this is the, um, the crime boss who hired him on page, one, or on page 15. There's this at the at the bottom left panel there's this kind of brutal dialogue i've got enough blood on my hands without washing in yours so get out of here pain you've shamed me in front of my family yeah he turns it right <laughs> around <laughs> this tough crime boss is like get out of here kid you ain't good enough for me <laughs> um and ultimately it then does bring us to his wife who again in the previous book had fallen in with this weird, this weird Christ-like figure who was actually not a Christ figure. It was yeah, crazy. But she's now embraced Christianity and is trying to offer it to him, but he can't seem to bring himself to accept it. The final page is heartbreaking. Again, this 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 issue just really tugs at your heart, where you got this, where you, the the final page kind of opens or shows you in the middle panel this letter that was sent to Doctor Strange by Corey, his, his ex-wife where Devil Slayer basically surrenders himself to the police for his crimes. Doing a little research on this um, and finding out what happens to Devil Slayer afterwards, he kind of, he doesn't even have a good afterlife post-Defenders. He's mentioned in Secret Wars, he's mentioned in The Secret Invasion, but in none of those cases is he particularly heroic. 
So this is just a, a character that is forever tortured in the Marvel Universe. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah, that's and it's all summed up with the last... I love the last three panels in this issue. It's just silent as Doctor Strange finishes reading the letter and he folds it up in one panel and then he sheds a tear in the last panel. It's like he Doctor, his heart breaks for Devil Slayer. Doctor Strange is a softie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it's interesting because Doctor Strange is not exactly a soft character. So quite often Strange is depicted as, as a bit harsh, at least in my opinion. So even here where Doctor Strange, a guy who's tied into the mystic arts and magic and all that, and, and so is Devil Slayer, it, to me it almost says that Doctor Strange realizes that there is no easy path for Devil Slayer. Mm, yeah. It's almost like a, a, a tear of pity more than sympathy. At least that's how I'm reading it. It could be, yeah. No, that's a good that's a good way to read it. We'll probably get a lot more tears of pity through this book. <laughs> There's a lot of tears. <laughs> All right, shall yeah. I jump into uh, 111? Please do. All right, so September of 1982, we have issue 111, the title of which is To the Devil, a Daughter. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right, so let me give you uh, a quick recap here. This is, again, going to be one of these personal character stories that uh, De Mateus is so good at, and this time we're focusing on Hellcat. So... She's troubled by the possibility that she might very well be the daughter of Satan. I think that's an understandable worry that many yep. <laughs> people would, would have. And she's trying to look into her own past. So she goes to her home of Greentown to track down who she thought was her dad. Apparently he was kind of a, I get the impression he was kind of a lounge about, a character that was not very involved with her past, and left her with an overbearing mother. And... Along the way, there's some really troubling depictions, at least, I guess, in, in modern, to modern eyes, because it seems like she gets almost like drugged or mind befuddled by the minions of Satan and carried off. And just the passages look really kind of creepy, especially in page 37 in the bottom left panel where she's just being carried off and she has this really terribly panicked look upon her face but then we get her meeting up with it turns out the people who did this to her are demons she battles them turns out one of the demons is in fact satan now satan is a character we've encountered in the defenders before yeah in particular that huge story arc, one of the best story arcs that we have had that dealt specifically with him coming to earth and son of satan the problem that we always face when we're dealing with the character of Satan is the problem of the unreliable narrator. Is Can we believe this guy? Right. And if you even just get a look at some of the – or just play around with some of the dialogue here, he is giving massive amounts of dialogue. And quite often he's kind of doubling back and then going forward again and then doubling back and going forward again. Even to the last point that he makes, um, uh, be forewarned now, woman, on page 45. Be forewarned now, woman. And she's like, you're still here as he's appearing in a, in a puddle. With the repayment of the debt, the game goes on. I resume my preordained role and you yours. And if we meet again, it will be as it should be. I, the prince of evil, lord of lies, and you, 
a worthless mortal sow that he's gone. Now, what he's referring to is he's actually supposedly giving her thanks for bringing out love in her son, in, in his son, Damon Hellstrom, the son of Satan. But it's tricky because, once again, he's saying that I am evil incarnate, but I wouldn't exist if it wasn't the evil in you. So it's kind of your fault, human beings, and you in particular, <laughs> Hellcat. But I'm really not that bad because I'm a nice guy. I'm just kind of doing my part. It's it's wild. And I love it because it's an interesting characterization. But he's trying to come off as sympathetic while also menacing. And so you you never quite know where you stand with it. What was your impression of Satan, by the way? I know you're a, you're a fellow who brings a different perspective being a – a man who is a Christian, how do you, how do you wrestle with him? Um, okay, so this is uh, an interesting character because, well, first of all, it's it's fictionalized because it's somebody's, in this case, J.M.D. Mateus's interpretation of Satan, and he he was a very interesting character in the last one because they gave him that spin that he had a a light side as well. There was the dark side and there was also the light side. Yeah, and that was that was weird. But in this issue, it's revealed that this Satan actually isn't the actual Satan. He's he he says at the bottom of page forty-two. Ah, yes, the Bible, the story of the angel Lucifer who was cast out of heaven by an angry God. It was from that story that I took my current name, uh, the better to be what man wants me to be. But I am not that Satan if indeed such a being does exist. So, right there, um, I found that this Satan lost a lot of his threat. Because, mm. for me, you know, it, you, have a, you have these tiers of ultimate evil. And, you know, you have the, your villains like Doctor Doom or whatever, and then the next level is like Thanos, and then you get down below and there's Mephisto, and then at the very bottom or the top, or however you want to rank your evil, is Satan. He's like the ultimate evil, right? But if mm -hmm. this guy is not that Satan, he's not the ultimate evil, and he can be defeated now. So he's not as much as a threat to me anymore. <laughs> they kind of actually ruined the um, ruined his character a little bit. I thought interesting, interesting. See, I like where you're coming with it, but then you also are confronted with the fact that he's a liar. And he right. declares himself to be a liar. So is this true? Oh, and that's where that point. unreliable yeah. narrative <laughs> yeah. is playing itself out. Because he seems like he's really trying to... I mean, I don't, I'm not even entirely certain what his motivation is here. Um, except perhaps to lure Damon Hellstrom back into the good graces of the father mm -hmm. by appealing to Patsy. But that that it, but if that's the case, that story doesn't really get followed through too much. Yeah, yeah. So the motivation for Satan to even bring this to her is baffling to me. I think at this point, I know that he still has like uh, a year and a half to go before the new Defenders becomes a thing. But at mm -hmm. this point, J.M. DeMatteis is is already thinking the long game and starting to tie up his loose ends and the relationship between patsy and damon is definitely a loose end mm -hmm. and i think the only way that he sees that he can get around that is by 
taking Satan out of the picture for both Patsy and Son of Satan. And in order to do that, we have to we have to, to confront Satan and realize that he doesn't hold any sort of power over either of these characters. Mm, uh, and good. so that's why we have a uh, that's why we have him say that he's not really who he says he is, or um, that you know he's not Hellcat's father, and that you know this was all just a kind of a game, and now he's leaving and leaving her with questions, leaving her with self-doubt leaving her with uh, no idea who she really is that's and, and i think that had to happen in order for her character to move forward uh, and also order for her in order for her to be written out of the story yeah and she will be leaving soon enough yeah also she, i i love the panel you alluded to it um, page 42 the lower left panel that you quoted from but i just love the the way the artist depicted with these <laughs> naked <laughs> yeah. people pulling this carousel around <laughs> yeah yeah it reminds uh, me of um let's see it reminds me of like ben-hur or mm. like in in the bible there's a story of samson who is like he's super strong and as long as his hair doesn't get cut he has the strength of of god or something like that and but then he gets betrayed and his hair gets cut and he's punished by working um, a mill. He gets chained to one of these posts like these these humans are and has to just turn around and around milling the this grain for a long 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 time until his hair grows back. And that's sort of that's sort of taken as like this is a this is a punishment, like an eternal torment kind of punishment where you're doing, you're trapped and doing the same manual labor over and over again for, you know, all of eternity. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I should also point out for this issue, the emotional gut punch, which comes on page 46 into 47, where Patsy does, in fact, meet with her father. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a lot... That is done with the art here, less with the words, which I always appreciate. Yes. And where you, the art just kind of tells you the story of these two people who come together and you know, there's plenty of tears again. That's going to be a, maybe that was a, a theme I should have mentioned. A lot of crying. Yeah. But there's a question with this. And again, it ties to that idea of Satan and his role. Is he setting this up as a reward or is he not? Um, because early on, the other character that we see here, this this bald fellow says, you know, I haven't seen this guy in ages, um, Eddie Fielder. And it seems like only by chance that, you know, he's like, well, maybe he'll come by and I have this address I can call you. This is a hell of, of a coincidence that all of a sudden after Satan's like, oh, thanks for helping my son fall in love. Well, boom, accident happens, providence happens, and you bump into your father. Yeah, I thought that was a little unusual, too, that he just kind of happened to be there after so much searching and after him disappearing. Very convenient. Um, and I half ex- I did half expect him to turn out to be, you know, Satan in disguise or something like that, or a demon Absolutely. that he sent, like we will see um, happens to Damon in a, in a few issues. But no, he appears at uh, at her wedding later on in this book, so he's he's kind of there. He stuck around for good. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, he <laughs> to me the appearance was unexpected. I mean, here's this guy who looks like he's like 
Ward Cleaver smoking a pipe. It is his nice sweater and dress <laughs> yeah. underneath. Not exactly what I was expecting, but nope. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. Uh, the letterer in this issue is... Shelley Lefferman? Yeah, Shelley Lefferman. Nice lettering because we have all of this cursive that Patsy is writing because this is like a journal entry of hers. And in the last issue, we had we had Eric's wife write that letter to Dr. Strange. So they made good use uh-huh. of her talents, her, her really nice writing skill. Curtis, your eye for detail astounds me as always. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I didn't even note that. Uh, the last panel of this issue introduces us to a brand new character called the Overmind. And also Overmind is talking to the president of the United States who happens to be Kyle Richmond for some reason. So a bunch of questions that will lead us not into the next issue because we have to take that detour that you were talking about into mm. the Avengers Annual number 11. Yes, yeah, so it's from 1982. So the title is In Honor's Name. And in this issue, we have a rematch between the Avengers and Defenders. They first fought in one of the great crossover events of the early Defenders run. And here they are coming together again, only this time to deal with one of the most notorious and, in my opinion, one of the funnest of the Defenders villains, a gentleman by the name of Nebulon. And Nebulon has had a... First of all, the look of Nebulon is fantastic. It's so 70s. It's a complete (laughs) 70s glam rock star. Yep. (laughs) Um, His outfit has, like, stars and cosmos within it. The open chest... Open chest, the, sh- the the shorty shorts, um, and his hair always seems to be flowing like a wind is coming by. He was involved in some of those wild stories involved, uh, involving Steve Gerber's The Bozos and trying to solve some of those, those are the problems. He may or may not have hooked up with uh, Namor on a submarine <laughs> once in disguise as Dorma. So he's a fun villain, and he's actually a big cosmic fish. This issue opens up with the ramifications of his big cosmic fishness interfering with the affairs of Earth as he's banished and given only half of his powers. It seems like he is in full existential crisis, moping mode when Thor just seems to happen upon him in the Himalayan mountains. And... Decides, hey, why don't you come back and become a de- an Avenger with us? Uh, at the same time, the Defenders are met with a female version of Nebulon, Supernalia, who convinces them that Nebulon is actually trying to destroy the Earth. <laughs> and so this brings us into cl- conflict uh, between the Avengers and Defenders. Now, what did you think of the actual fight scenes here? Did you have, do you have an opinion about those? Well, they a lot of them were just padding in order to make this a, a king-sized epic adventure. <laughs> but yeah. I didn't, I didn't dislike them. Did you? Were you not thrilled with them? I was not. Um, I, uh, there were some character beats that do come out in some of these, but a lot of them kind of rang as a bit too, like the 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 Valkyrie versus Thor. I thought was underwhelming. Um, one that is pretty interesting is Iron Man versus Silver Surfer, but Gargoyle versus Wasp is just kind of meh. I guess it's there. 
the Beast versus Captain America gets really kind of brutal at the end of it. Yeah, it really does. I found that usually when you have these team battles, they try to pair up kind of the evenly matched characters. You know, the weaker ones will fight the weaker ones. And I, you get that a little bit here, like with Valkyrie and Thor. They're sort of on the same level. But it's an odd pairing between Captain America and Beast. I don't think I've ever seen them fight before, like just the two of them. Yeah. Gargoyle and Wasp have a completely different power set. And same with Iron Man and Silver Surfer. It's, it, they are odd pairings. Um, and I think that a lot of this comes down to also Al Milgram's art. He mm. is a guy that just, he's very notable, notable for being fast. He can just crank out the pages. And so some of the time his layouts and the choreography suffers a little just because he's moving at quite a quick pace. Yeah. And I think that kind of shows itself in these battles here. I was never a big fan of Al Milgram. He's, I love his inks. I tend to love his inks. But sometimes his choice of perspective as well is just mind. He tends to go for the insect view up. Like on page 74 in the lower right panel where you see Valkyrie and she, she's, she's making a big statement. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And it's a mind-boggling perspective. Why are you taking the bottom up point of view on that? Um, it's weird, yeah. And she's just kind of stretched in a weird way. Yeah. Milgram doesn't get all that much love in a lot of the comic circles I yeah. uh, I, I kind of walk in. Um, yeah, I'm sure he's, he's done some good stuff, but yeah. yeah. Oh, he, sh he surely has. There's uh, a lot of good stuff early, especially earlier on in his career, um, back before he wasn't so concerned about cranking out the pages. Uh, but he became the, he became the kind of the go-to guy for... Uh, just the Marvel editors who needed a quick fill-in issue or, you know, to, to meet deadlines and that kind of thing. And he he just became that guy that filled in wherever was needed. Yeah. One of the other problems I have with this fight, this big fight, is Nebulon, you lose track of him, the geography of the fight. Apparently he's down, but every once in a while you get like a, a little hint of him, but the, you, there's no... The, the sense of place seems, at least for me, was seemed to be a little bit lost at times. Right. Well, that's problematic. Anyway, as the story unveils, we find out, <laughs> is Supernalia or is it Nebulon who's actually doing ill here? And it turns out, of course, it's our old friend Nebulon, who has one of the greatest um, pieces or named pieces of machinery in the Marvel Universe, the Ennui device. Just <laughs> <It is> kind <laughs> yeah. of makes you sad and mopey and he's stealing everyone's power to try to reboost up his power <laughs> but he's he's not the only person who's bad here it was actually super natalia who was controlling the minds of of the defenders yeah the super nalia yeah, giving him a little touch here and a little touch there and all of a sudden they're on their side so they're they're both not good guys but they're also both not necessarily bad guys either i guess oh i think that i think that nebulon's fallen into the bad guy category although there yeah. is a redemption at the end sort of yeah well i get yeah then again i guess the was it the beast that turns the angle of the 
ennui device upon <laughs> Nebulon that then begins killing him, and yeah. Supernalia jumps in. They call it they, the honorable way, like death is the honorable way, but there's not really honor. I mean, I guess Super, uh, Supernalia saves the beast from... He would have been killed, so she saves him. But uh, but they just... Yeah, it's not really an honorable death because they still well, were doing what they were doing. Well, they, De Mateus makes an interesting point to imply that the reason why Nebulon doesn't take this supposed honorable death is because he's been influenced by Earth and the culture of Earth, the individualism of Earth, which I think is kind of kind of cool. It adds a layer onto Nebulon, I suppose. Right. Yeah, you know, that makes him just a, a little bit more interesting. I wish that there was more uh, that was done with Nebulon later on, uh, but unfortunately, this is this is the end of the road for Nebulon, as far as I know. Oh, I'm sure he comes. He pops back sooner or later. <laughs> they all come back eventually. <laughs> they need more Neb. Well, the world needs more Nebulon. Yeah. it's just a better place with him. Yeah. Overall, uh, this issue was. Mm, I don't know. It was not one of the highlights of the book. It, it, it kind of meandered. It had some interesting concepts and such. Need to see another of Nebulon's species, but overall, fairly forgettable issue. I much rather enjoyed the, the Nebulon appearance from the previous issue when he was pretending to be Lady Dorma. I thought yeah, that one was, was better. <laughs> yeah. Much more fun. Um, again, I love him. I love, his, I love the look of him. Yeah. That's what saves this issue for me. And I remember as a kid buying this issue. Okay. Uh, I, can just, I can distinctly remember that and, and not regretting the purchase of it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but, no. As a, if, especially if you're buying this as a kid and you're like, the Defenders oh, yeah. and the Avengers are in the issue together and this crazy Absolutely. villain and stuff. Yeah, there's a, lot to, uh, there's a lot to love there for sure. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to issue number 112. This one's called Strange Visitor from Another Planet. And uh, the Beast has officially moved in. He actually moved in to the Avenger, into the Defender's house um, in the annual that we just read. And so he's here. And the team joins Doctor Strange, Bruce Banner, Namor, Damon, and also Nighthawk, who are trying to heal Hyperion. They've been tra- teleported to somewhere they're not too sure. It ends up being um, an alternate world. This is a continuation of something that happened three issues ago that we haven't like Demetrius took a break they left us with that cliffhanger saying that Nighthawk is back and then we didn't revisit it for three issues um, and now we're back trying to figure out what's going on and they are on what do they call it Earth S Earth S which is a run they don't have the Avengers on this world instead they have the Squadron Supreme this this is a, a dense issue full of a lot of kind of backstory and also yeah mostly backstory the whole issue is Hyperion telling us how his world got to the place it is how Overmind took over all of the people and all of the the squadron in order to take over the world and control it all Mm. and then we get to the very end where they say that uh, they need to do something otherwise this this armada on the moon is going to send their missiles to destroy the universe it's crazy <laughs> it's, it's so good so 
Wow. Yeah, like you said, this is a very dense exposition issue. Yes. Where they're really trying to set some stuff up. And I think they do so effectively because even though this is a lot of exposition, you still get an interesting fight between uh, the Squadron Supreme and Overmind. So I had to do a little background on Overmind to figure out what exactly this guy is. And apparently he first appears not too far, I guess, well, I guess about 10 years previous in Fantastic Four 113 from 1971. And in there they're calling him an Eternal, Eternal of the Planet Jung. And so it has that look of a Kirby character. I don't think there's any more of a sort of a Kirby-esque design. Yeah. I don't know if Kirby did that. 113 is probably post-Kirby. But it certainly has has that look about him. And this is not the Eternals from uh, the Jack Kirby comic books that are coming uh, probably around this time. I suppose they were coming out with Icarus and, and all that. I think it would have been, that was in the 70s, right? That would have been just yeah. before this. Yeah, I think so. Um, so there's, I guess, different Eternals, and essentially he is all of the Eternals of Jung rolled up into one big psychic being, <laughs> if that <laughs> makes sense for you. He stands probably about seven feet tall, sometimes depicted as even taller. Yeah. Actually, I'm looking at him now, ten feet tall is how they pick the picture him. Strange design, cool looking design. Uh, but a very powerful character we come to realize in this issue, so much so that he's able to dispatch the Squadron Supreme, which is the Justice League of the Marvel Universe, fairly easily. Uh, my favorite of those is if you look on page 104, in particular at the bottom, where they go up against the Power Princess, who is the Wonder Woman analog. Yep. She's giving him a couple of good shots, and then the final panel <laughs> bonk. Yeah, <laughs> he just comes over her head, knocks her out without much effort. Like his his stance doesn't even change. No, <laughs> in order to like hit her really, really hard, she has to use all of her strength to try and hit him, and it doesn't make a um, a dent. So that just shows you how extremely powerful this guy is. Absolutely. Do you have any thoughts on the Squadron Supreme? What are what, what's your associate, association with them, if any? Um, my association is that I've read the the Mark Grunewald miniseries, the 12-issue miniseries, mm. and I love it. I think that was a fantastic story. Mm. So I do like these characters. This came out after that. No, this came out before. I believe oh, this, this sets this up. You're this right. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, where, this is where everything goes to pot in the first place, and then it's that's why the Squadron Supreme World is in the state that it is in for the Mark Grunewald series. That's right. And so, yeah, that was interesting to see, um, to see that set up. Yeah. I love the Squadron Supreme. Um, I remember them way back in the Avengers issues when they first, when they were the Squadron Sinister and made their appearance. And it's one of these teams that whenever I see them uh, appearing, it always kind of, I get that extra little flutter in my heart and my, wallet gets a little extra uh, scratch in it that I got dropped some money because I've, I've always been a huge fan of them. Um, and the Squadron Sinister has appeared in the past of the Defenders. They've gone up against them. And there's even some kind of uh, reference to that a little bit um, in this book when they, when they encounter Hyperion, some trepidation working with him. So Nighthawk, let's jump into that for a bit. <laughs> okay. So Nighthawk dies in the previous... 
uh, uh, epic Marvel epic collection. And if you listen to Curtis and I talk about that in the past, you'll hear how I was very happy about that because I was having he, he just came off as so whiny and he and he does have a redemption death, so that was that was nice. Yeah, as his girlfriend who he was just absolutely awful to this girlfriend named Mindy and there were her relation his relationship with her kind of intertwines she goes insane because he treats her so badly and apparently in her big sacrifice or he sacrifices herself for her in the end that's what we're left with now in this issue we have the appearance of Nighthawk and my god he finally has a good costume <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is that cool mask. with the just the, yeah the mask that covers his mouth and such makes all the difference in the world it really does some of the earliest appearances when he so when nighthawk first appears as a villain in daredevil he had one of the most ridiculous costumes of all time with his big goofy beak onto it when he first appears in the defenders he was continuing to wear the costume with the big goofy beak rapidly changed to a modification on that open-faced costume with um with sort of the wings coming off the side this I, I look at this and I'm like, all right, I, I can rock with this. This is a cool looking costume. Maybe a little too little, too late. So, but this is a big alarm bell or uh, for the defenders because he Nighthawk has been this major character that we've been following, and now we have him dead, and yet here he is. Yeah. So, yeah. if you're following this this comic, you're like, oh my god. This is a huge story for for these characters. Of course, what's going to happen with that is going to be interesting, but not this issue, at least not yet. One thing I love about this issue also is that um, this is one of the rare appearances of Bruce Banner. Oh, yeah. The Hulk is, all, is often there, and we rarely get Bruce Banner. It's almost like the relationship to the Defenders is Hulk's primarily, Banner's secondary. So it's kind of interesting to see in this issue, in particular on page 95, you got Valkyrie just seems delighted to see Bruce there. So it's nice to see him actually kind of being a part of it, even though he gets a little bit manhandled by Valkyrie as she's kind of throws him aside <laughs> as she sees Nighthawk. <laughs> but that's that's kind of nice to see. I, it always makes me happy. I love that they revisit a little bit of the history of um, the Squadron Supreme. And as a historian, I just chuckle when I see Nelson Rockefeller with the serpent skull, or serpent crown. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> the idea is that he became, or he was corrupted by it, and uh, that's just fun. Very much of its time, I suppose. I don't think a modern audience kind of uh, gets into gets in with that. The costumes of the Squadron Supreme. Oof, there's some hits and misses here. I gotta say. Amphibian, who's the Aquaman analog, looks like an aerobics instructor from the 1980s. <laughs> but I think they're trying to do their best to make sort of golden age or early silver age looking costumes. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right on that. I think that a lot of them are kind of bad on purpose. That's a good bad. I think I can agree with you on that one. Yeah. Well, the, the meat of this story is really in the next issue. Do you want to jump over to that one? Sure. Okay, so this one is issue number 113. It's called Moon Madness. And the defenders have to get through the mind-controlled squadron in order to get, over, get to Overmind. Um, and then once they do that, which takes most of the issue here, they find out 
that uh, Overmind isn't actually the one who's calling the shots here. Um, and we get the reappearance of a creature that we've met in the previous volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a this was a much better episode. Uh, they still the, the first few pages are still full of exposition because Hyperion hasn't quite finished telling a story yet. <laughs> it's so true. <laughs> so we we get that, but then once we get past that and our characters start interacting, then it becomes a lot more interesting. Vision and Scarlet Witch are along for the ride here, and they serve no purpose whatsoever. Uh, they don't do anything of any real consequence. They don't. However, I, I do like some of the conversations between the Silver Surfer and the Vision in the sense that Silver Surfer, for the first time, is able to actually leave Earth's atmosphere because he's on a different Earth. And I guess Galactus's restraints no longer apply. And Silver Surfer looks like he's so ecstatic about this, but it's Vision who kind of kind of rein him in and say, look, buddy, we got to get to the moon, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Hold, hold your horses. <laughs> I like that, um, that sort of interaction between the two. And it's, it's one I, would, I think I would like to see a lot more, even though we get a good amount on it, page 122 in particular. Because these are two very interesting characters that you'd like to see a philosophical conversation with. Silver Surfer, who's always so detached, almost looking looking down upon humanity or disappointed by humanity, I guess is probably a better term. And then the Vision, who's oftentimes so analytical, it just makes for an interesting kind of personality mix, at least as I read the two of them totally. interacting together. No, I think that they're actually very, very similar because they're both detached uh, because of just vision being an, an android or a synthesoid and silver surfer because of his just his general experience in life but silver surfer still is actually quite an emotional person or character Absolutely. but he tries to downplay that and then vision on the other hand is always searching to be more emotional so they kind of balance each other out in that sense yeah it was a, it was a good interaction i was really able to uh, to get into that we do have a good fight between the Defenders and the Squadron Supreme in yeah, this one. Yeah, There's one match up in particular, I think, that was uh, what we would, what wrestling fans would call a squash match. <laughs> On page 126, you get Tom Thumb versus the Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> Not the best, but a real highlight match, which we unfortunately don't get enough of, is Valkyrie versus Power Princess. Oh, I would love to see, see a bigger um, exploration of those two going at it. Who is Tom Thumb supposed to be the analog for? Is it the Atom? The Atom, okay. I, I'm not entirely certain. I'm, I mean, I'm always been a big time Marvel zombie. Yeah. <laughs> My dipping into um, DC is very, very limited. But I can um, pick out every other character except for that guy. I wasn't sure who Tom Thumb's supposed to be. I mean, the Atom just because he's small, but the Tom, but Tom Thumb doesn't have any sort of size-changing abilities. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure your listeners will probably be better informed than you and I on that particular one. So I, beyond the Atom, I can't say, and my knowledge of the Atom is mostly confined to Legends of Tomorrow, where I guess he's almost like an Iron Man-type character that shrinks. <laughs> yeah, So true. So there we go. At one point, this ball of energy comes to help the Defenders. And this is very unusual because it's it, it's 
the combined psyches of all of the psychic characters that were in the Captain America Defenders crossover from the last volume. And, in fact, that story starts in the pages of Captain America in J.M. Mm-hmm. DiMatteis' run. And they were all blown up when um, when Nighthawk died, right? If I remember Police. correctly. Yeah, and so all of, servant. all of their psychic, uh, whatever you want to call it, manifestations are now all fused together. And in this particular instance, they took the form of Mindy, Nighthawk's former girlfriend. And so this is going to play a, a big role coming up pretty soon here. It really is. So I love Noel. <laughs> I loved this character. Yeah, um, he just looks cool, too. He's so Lovecraftian, Noel the Living Darkness. And at the end of this issue, we have Kyle Richman, shots by Augustus Masters. And you're um, like, yes, he got killed again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. I have questions. I guess Augustus. So am I to understand, maybe you, your notes picked up on this. August Masters, he was the bad guy who had entrapped Mindy in that Secret Empire storyline that we just referenced. Yeah. And we, I, I assumed that he had died there, but now here he is popping here. Can I, are we to assume that this Mindy being transported him here as well? Okay, so this, it says at the beginning... Uh, on page 116, that um, he, yeah, I don't know how it happened, but the telepaths destroyed the pow- destroyed Powers' installation, destroying themselves, Richmond, and, and Masters in the bargain. But to Masters' utter surprise, he found himself materializing on this planet. So, right. uh, on this planet, so like his own, but so very different. So, I think that what has happened here is that all of these personalities in this explosion got teleported to the squat to Earth S. So that that's why all of the um all of the psychics are fused together here. Their bodies must have been destroyed, but they their presence was teleported here. Um also Nighthawk was teleported here. Or was he? <laughs> or was he? Yeah. Well, or some because there's already a, a Kyle Richmond here. So where did this one yeah, where yeah, does this one see, come from? That's the question. There's some, there's some tricky things here that I was kind of trying to wrap my head around. Um, and I suppose it kind of lends itself to just how dense the exposition on and these two issues of the story arc are. And the third issue is kind of dense in and of itself as well. Yeah. But from what we, uh, from, from what we have, so August Masters shoots Kyle Richmond, the president, and out of the corpse of Kyle Richmond emerges Noel, the Living Darkness. But we also have Nighthawk here. So this is where some of this confusion is going to come from. Um, the look of Noel, the Darkness, so much better than the first time he appeared. Yeah, it's really <laughs> the good. The first time he appeared, he looked like a big bunch of pink chewed bubblegum. But now he has like this... This, this kind of dark blue, uh, some great highlights, all these red eyes popping out of it. That last page on 134 of this issue, fantastic. It just really has everybody like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. We got to deal with this guy. I love that. It's a real good issue. This is also the one where Don Perlin is credited as co-plotter. 
Mm. And I wonder if that's because of all the exposition. Um, he, I wonder if he had to chat with J.M. DeMatteis about how to convey all of this information that's being thrown at us because it's a lot of information. Oh, it does. It absolutely does. So shall we conclude this uh, particular storyline? Yes, let's do that. All right, so let's go into issue 114, cover date of December 82. And the title of this story is Dance of Darkness, Dance of Light. (laughs) So this story picks up with the confrontation of the Squadron Supreme plus the Defenders as they showdown versus Noel the Living Darkness. And combined into this, we have the Mindy being. That's that combination of all the people, the psychics who were defeated before. And to defeat Noel the Living Darkness, um, Mindy is going to have to essentially Voltron up, for lack of a better term. In other words, absorb the psychic energy, psychic force of all the characters, all the good guys here and engage with Noel the Living Darkness. But even then, it's not easy. In fact, apparently the way in which she defeats him is by finding some small piece of goodness that she can then expose Noel the Living Darkness to. And at the end of it, he dies from the power of the good guy's friendship. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There is some well, What do you think? There is some really issue? really great artwork in this issue. I was thoroughly impressed with especially some of these huge splash pages in the middle during the the battle between Mindy and Null. Mhm. Um some really really cool stuff with uh, the motion lines and such the the lighting on it because she is a light creature, a creature of light. So um battling Null who seems to be a creature of dark. There's this dark versus light going on. And uh, very, very cool stuff. I thought that this was, uh, out of the three parts, this was the best issue. Mostly because it didn't have, I mean, it does actually have quite a bit of exposition here as well. Um, Especially with Null's story, kind of catching us up to speed with him. Uh, but, But once we get into the actual battle and we find out like what he's about and then uh, it, it's a lot of fun. Unfortunately, the defenders don't do much in this issue. No, they don't. It's all really just Mindy. They just kind of, the rest of them just sit back and enjoy the ride. And try to find their inner goodness. Yeah. Um, there are some fun moments, though, where you kind of get a sense of just how one of the weaknesses of the defenders is that they are such individualistic characters so, like, for example, the Silver Surfer is like, you know, I, I could take this guy on myself. <laughs> Flies up to face off yeah. against Noel. Yeah. And my goodness, does he get spanked. Um, it's one of the only times you'll ever see Silver Surfer really just get get taught a lesson. On page 143, it's, it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good beatdown. Hyperion tries to go solo on uh, Noel as well, and he doesn't do all that good either. And so... Uh, it's fun to see them having to try to, and even Namor, he wants to go and have his own solo on this one with Hulk. But it's fun to see that in the wake of so many of them getting defeated, that they actually have to kind of put their egos aside and join into this this Mindy entity, if you will. 
On page 153, uh, there's one point where multiple people are trying to talk at once because uh, their psyches are all kind of fused together. And the it's an interesting way of, of portraying this where the the bold letters, the bold words are all one sentence, but the ones mm-hmm. that are not bolded are another sentence and they're kind of interspersed, like they alternate unbold and bold and unbold. So you have to kind of literally read between the lines in order to find out what they are, what what, what people are saying. You know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because one thing I love about comics from this time period that I don't really see so much in the current time is is the boldening of of words within a sentence right as if that gives you the emphasis upon those right yeah you understand the inflection and stuff yeah yeah i don't know if i see that as much uh nowadays as i do in comics of this time no i think that if i were to blame someone for that i would probably blame brian michael bendis uh when Ultimate Spider-Man, when he was doing Ultimate Spider-Man, he decided to um, write in regular case so mm-hmm. he, it wouldn't be all uppercase. He'd have mixed case uh, sentences. Interesting. And he did away with the bold letters at that point, and I think a bunch of people followed suit after that. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I quite like Michael uh, Brian Michael Bendis's writing. Um, right, but that's a crime. Uh, that's a crime we can uh, we can blame him for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the other big reveal in this issue has to deal with the Kyle Richmond situation. So August Masters, he's he's looking down upon President Kyle Richmond, the guy who was shot, and the body is deteriorating in a way that is not natural. So this seems to indicate that what we're dealing with is probably a clone that was made by Noel. So that then leaves us with the question, well, what are we doing with Nighthawk? And at that point, Nighthawk's memory returns and he realizes that he's actually the Earth-S Nighthawk. So that then ties into that question I had before. Well, then, if August Masters is brought to Earth-S, if Mindy and all those personas are brought to Earth-S, why not Kyle Richmond? So I wonder if Kyle Richmond was brought to Earth S, and then Null took over his body, and he's he's dead. Mm. Because Null takes over the body, and it says here that whoever whatever's left, like when Null leaves, it's just an empty shell. And we see that with Overmind, Overmind is taken over by Null as well, and he's left an empty shell. So it is possible that Earth six one six Kyle Richmond was teleported with everybody else and then got taken over by Null. And I don't know why uh, Earth-S's Nighthawk had his memory erased or whatever, because he actually, he could recognize Mindy's voice. So he had Earth-616 Kyle Richmond's memories, apparently, I think. It's an interesting question, I guess. (laughs) That's my theory, at least. Yeah, it also is great because this now leads directly into um, into the uh, into the Squadron Supreme miniseries, and one of the main focus in that is the idea that um, Nighthawk is not going to stand for the Squadron Supreme with what they're attempting to do in terms of using their superpowers to kind of control better and re 
redesign civilization. And I think that you can see some of that planted here in that he's a little bit different than yeah than some of the other squadron supreme uh, characters that are are played out on that at least i i kind of got an impression on that i think so i think i think it's a nice setup even if jmd mateus didn't know what he was setting up um it's funny that like the world is in shambles and the defenders are like okay uh see you later guys <laughs> and the rest is up to you they're not going to stick around and help or anything like that yeah but i guess they have the squadron the squadron's still there so yeah 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 well that's a great series <laughs> yeah squadron Supreme. totally mm. okay let's mm. keep on going here issue number 115 a very wrong turn beast oh, what a fun one. yeah beast gargoyle namor valkyrie uh they all for some reason when they go through the teleporter they get sidetracked to um, a, a different land than everybody else uh, everybody else goes home but these guys get stuck in this Seussian type world a world that's modeled after Dr. Seuss and uh, with the characters rhyme they're all furry um, they make they do fun stuff with wordplay and everything like that <laughs> but there's a tyrannical ruler that they need that uh, the defenders need to help overthrow. <laughs> so that's a little <laughs> out of Dr. Seuss's usual kind of uh, subject matter. Um, although maybe not. I mean, the Butter Battle book is is an analogy for the Cold War. So there is mm. a, there is some stuff in there that you could uh, see <laughs> follow through. But um, but yeah. So it's it's this is basically just a fun issue full of humor, just full of whimsy. Uh, there is some action, but for the most part, it's just a, it's just a kind of a calm after the dense, heavy issues that we previously just had. Yes, I, I love issues like this. Totally. I love issues that, after some really heavy storylines, that the creative team just takes an issue, maybe even two issues, just to realign us with these characters. Let these characters have a little bit of breathing room, have a little bit of fun. And this issue is, is is perfect in that, um, even though this is a a silly story, and it's meant to be, there's still some fantastic character moments in this, such as when Namor finally gets a chance to jump in the water. It turns out the water's all made out of soda <laughs> or malt. <laughs> yeah. and, he's, and Namor, the poor guy, is not having any of this in this issue. He is frustrated he can't stand the silliness of this and it, it makes it all the more sweet at the end when he has to put on the ruby sandals i guess <laughs> that's what those were. or sneakers some sort of sneakers yeah <laughs> he was my favorite of part fun. of this it's just the way that he handled this world and i can understand being so incredibly frustrating with everything that's going on here um he is he's so frustrated and he doesn't know how to handle that um, and he acts in his typical Namor fashion, but he, he, I just found him to be, it was both amusing and endearing kind of at the same time. Yeah, uh, th that is all encapsulated on page 169 in the middle um, call or middle pass uh, on the right side where, you know, he's been told this exposition and he's like, enough! <laughs> he screams. <laughs> and then the next panel, if I had if I had any doubts that this is some halluc mad hallucination, they have been dispelled by this ludicrous tale. 
And even if this were some twisted reality, you would find Namor deaf to your puerile pleas. Deaf, do you hear? (laughs) (laughs) I love how just how much he hates it. He just hates it so much. (laughs) (laughs) And the fun thing is Gargoyle seems to be uh, okay with most of it. (laughs) Even though here's this old fella, he's just kind of going along, kind of seeing how this is going to go. That's what I love uh, about Gargoyle in general is he, he just goes along with everything. He accepts it, accepts it as it comes and just is along for the ride. <laughs> yeah. On page 166, for example, the top panel, Namor's like, this is madness, sheer madness. And Gargoyle's like, oh, I don't know about that. Your Highness, they're kind of cute, whatever they are. <laughs> <laughs> um, Fun stuff. The only question I had is why do some of these characters rhyme and some of them not um, if it's truly a dr seuss world every single character should rhyme mm. but like there's the there's the fish in the malt uh in the malt water he doesn't mm-hmm. rhyme and the 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 overlord who they're trying to overthrow he doesn't he doesn't rhyme either speakeasy speakeasy that yeah that's right <laughs> <laughs> Oh, easy read. I'm sorry. Easy read. Oh, um, yeah. Easy read, of course, because Dr. Seuss writes books, easy reader books. And the ir- irony is, of course, that he has a speech impediment, which makes him very difficult to read. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So at the very end, there is a dedication to Theodore Giesel, uh, mm-hmm. who is Dr. Seuss, in case we didn't catch the the reference there. <laughs> I uh, also love that there's a little bit of Conan graffiti. On page 18 at the bottom, right, when um, Conan Easy was Reed here, is yeah. getting spanked, <laughs> Conan was here. I actually had a chance to interact with Don Perlin over this issue when I was um, uh, reviewing it for that Facebook blog I do. Oh, okay. Because my comment was, and I, and I tagged him on it, and he replied, my comment was, Don, you must have had a great time uh imagining this world and uh also come with day matthias uh, matthias seems to be really enjoying it and perlin replied and this is so perfect neither here nor there and the reason why that's so funny is because the reason why these two kingdoms are going to wars because both of them want to declare themselves to be here right, right. <laughs> and the other one to be there <laughs> so i thought that was quite clever of perlin that seems like something that he would say too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's. It's always nice when the um, when the riot, the comic uh, creators of the time interact with their with their fans. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can leave this issue behind us and move forward. Number one sixteen is called Two by Two. You want to take us through this one? Sure. So Two by Two. Um, this is another one of these downtime issues. Yep. And in this one. We're going to have uh, kind of reacquaint ourselves with the overmind here as he's or, or she. It's almost they. The pronouns are almost interesting to kind of work with on on this one. Uh, but overmind is trying to figure out exactly who he is, what his place is. And so he goes to Dr. Strange and there's kind of a. Doctor Strange is in a weird place too. Clea and him have been having a little bit of trouble since issue Doctor Strange issue fifty five, where she has kind of got a little overwhelmed and left, according to the dialogue box there. So they're kind of having this, I guess, bonding moment, 
And they kind of do something a little creepy <laughs> as I'm reading it. And what I mean by creepy is they begin peeking in on the romantic interludes of their teammates. Yeah, that was, and Doctor Strange even mentions that it's a little weird for us to be doing this. <laughs> <laughs> it is. But the, the romantic, this issue is all about romance. I mean, right off the bat, we're saying goodbye to Vision and Scarlet Witch. And we got a nice little emphasis about how those two characters love each other with this wonderful little kiss in the middle of 185. My favorite of these was the near hookup between Valkyrie and Namor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure they did hook up. It's, I, no, I don't. You don't I, think so? I, I, well, no, because Namor kind of, and Namor is, Namor has a reputation. Um, he's a guy who's usually gets around, which I thought was, I thought this issue was a little bit out of character for Namor, because he's usually pretty free with the with the loving. Yeah. Um, but in this issue, he turns Val down because he's still heart warmed over the loss of, of or heart set over the loss of Dorma in classic submariner issue number 37 they say um so <laughs> does that feel uh, at peace with you and how namers usually predict or depicted um at at this point i think i would say yes does okay. he i don't know namor i don't really think namor as a as a player as someone who plays the field a lot maybe i'm mistaken or maybe i just haven't read enough namor but he usually tortures himself over his past loves which mm. he's doing here and now the wording in some of this though like after they have their little fun time in the water and you know they're doing their thing or whatever and then namor sulking on this rock and valkyrie comes up and 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 namor says you should not have swum after me valkyrie you should not have joined me today at all and i i think that they actually did hook up underwater Interesting. <laughs> at that point. Interesting. And, and Namor's like, this was a mistake. We shouldn't have done that um, because I just cheated on Lady Dorma, who um, I have vowed to be forever with or something like that. See, here's where I will make a case against that. And it's a very subtle thing. So if you notice on page 193, in the upper left panel were the two kiss. Yeah. Notice Namor's eyes are open. Ah, he's not in, He's not into it? Yeah, that kind of gives me the idea that he's, he's, he's not really things. into it. I think it's fantastic that Val has underneath her costume a, <laughs> <laughs> a pink or a pink one piece or Whatever it is, lines. yeah, I don't even know. <laughs> fantastic. I love that the horse Aragorn is just hanging out, <laughs> kind of presumably nearby, uh, waiting on things. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was a funny relationship. But all of these, uh, all of the relationships here, it, it's interesting. They divide this issue kind of in half. So first, they're spying on everybody to see how great their relationships are. And Doctor Strange makes the comment, "You know, why are you showing me these things? It's only making me feel worse about me and Clea." <laughs> and mm. and then he's like, "Then then Overmind says, no, let's take a closer look at these relationships.'" And it goes back and revisits all of them, um, except for Wanda and Vision, because at this point, their relationship is actually rock solid. Um, yeah. It takes a look at all of these these characters again, 
and shows that their relationships are actually not what they seem to be. Uh, they're actually quite strained. Um, Beast and Vera. Vera is filled with jealousy over how popular Beast is, and Beast is doing dumb things like forgetting dates and stuff like that. He's he's making a mess of things. Patsy and Damon, of course, are in completely different places right now because of Oof. of where they're they've been going through. That was a tough conversation. Tears were shed. Yeah, of course. And, and Gargoyle is plagued with his own insecurities, so he feels like he can't move forward with Dolly. Namor is tied to his past loves. It's, they all have these hang-ups that are preventing them from moving forward. So, And that kind of carries through through the rest of this book. Nobody, except with the exception of uh, Patsy and Damon, really move forward in their relationships. In fact, most of them get worse. So what's your impression of Patsy and Damon? I find this relationship to be terribly tr- problematic in yes. so many ways. <laughs> yeah. From start to finish, and I'm glad that they're no longer an item if, I, if I'm up to date uh, correctly on Marvel. Yeah. He's abusive uh, in, in a way physically in 198. He literally is shoving her to the ground. He's self-centered as, as one could be storming off in his own emotions, leaving her emotions unaddressed. Um, and, and this is quite common. This doesn't just end <laughs> or, or start in this issue. This is, there's a whole tread of this. And even in their marriage, it is oftentimes problematic. At least for a modern viewer, going back and reading into this, it's like, oof, oof. Hard to kind of get on board with that, that one. Well, and Patsy's no better. I mean, she's very self-centered in this conversation as well. She refuses to talk with Damon about what actually is going on in her mind. And as a couple, they should be walking through each other's problems together. And this is a big deal, finding out who her father is and who her father isn't. Like, that should have been a, um, you know, an opening conversation And and an exciting conversation because she's found out part of her life and uh but the two of them they just don't know how to communicate and i think that's true with each other but that's also true with their other relationships as well and we see that come out between patsy and val later on as well and and damon is just a he just doesn't know how to talk to people (laughs) i think one clever thing they do with beast and vera is if you look at page 190 Beast just monopolizes all the conversation. He barely yeah. barely gives her a chance to speak as he's just kind of going on and on and on and explaining himself, explaining himself, and explaining. I mean, you can almost imagine that if you're in that relationship, what DeMatteis is showing is how she is really kind of getting pushed to the, to the backgrounds in his idea of celebrity, his idea of self, his idea of superheroing. And I think that's also quite subtly done in that one. But I was just noticing just how he dominates this conversation. It really doesn't even give her too much room to find expression before his verbiage just explodes. And so when yeah. she is actually given given voice, it's very small. And look at how this is portrayed in the drawings as well. On page 90, you have the six panels that form the two bottom rows. And you mm-hmm. see her in the top three panels getting smaller and smaller. And in the ba- the bottom three panels, she's not in them at all. And Beast's face gets bigger and bigger. And the text 
it gets more and more present. So by the end of this, in this last panel on page 90, 190, it is page eight in this issue. It's so crowded with Beast yeah. and his own thoughts. It's like the artwork is reflecting what's going on in his brain. Ah, great observation. And the other thing I want to note is that I think that Beast, his whole relationship with Vera, he puts on an act for her the entire time, like he does with his fans. This era of Beast is very weird because he's very popular. He's a ladies' man. Uh, it goes very much against everything that was happening with him in the X-Men. Mm-hmm. Um, and he revels in it, and he he uses that to hide his real shame that he kind of mentions here. And I think he does that with Vera as well. He puts on an act and he doesn't really know how to truly be himself around her. Yeah, it's fun. They're going to revisit this, this relationship in particular and this era of beast, um, as you just described, projecting a outward jovial sort of almost comical character. He's going to get called out on it in particular when he starts doing um, some uh, lecture circuit stuff. But that's for the next volume of, of The Defenders, which hopefully I'll, I'm getting people excited for. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excited for it. After reading this one, I do, even though they don't hold it in high regard, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Oh, it, it, you, There's some great surprises in there. I love the Dolly and Gargoyle relationship. Yeah. It's so rare to find folks of a certain age depicted romantically and... I think this is just, I think it's brilliant. I think it's really nice. A nice touch to have that sort of element to it. And I think that their relationship is quite cute and tender. They approach it so differently than everybody else. And I think that's just because of their age and experience. Mm-hmm. And especially with Dolly, it she she looks past the outside appearance and, recognizes, and realizes and understands that it's definitely, you know, what... It's Isaac's character and his moral attitude and his heart that's really important. Yeah. It's, it, it's interesting to note also, if you look at page 200, how the art is done, the way in which these two interact is interesting because it's almost like, it's almost like those moments where you're first starting to fall in love and you test the waters with like a little tactile bump here, a touch there. Yeah. So you notice their hands just keep bumping into each other in very nice ways. So that at the top left, at the bottom right, the next page, the top left, the top right, until finally we get the culmination in this really sweet hug. I thought that was just a really tender way in which the art is helping to tell this wonderful little story. Yeah. And then Doctor Strange puts on fireworks for everybody um, <laughs> to celebrate love. <laughs> And there, yeah, there we have it. That's the end of this issue. There's, it's it's interesting how J.M. DiMatteis has structured his arcs here. It's like we have a huge multi-part story, then a few issues um, dealing with something, then a huge multi-part story, then a few issues de- dealing with something, and we're going to start pretty soon another huge multi-part story. And, uh, and I think we have one more stop before we do that. Before we move on to one one uh, issue one. Uh, 17. One other thing I'd like to point out about 116 is um, the inks. So it's credited as diverse hands. So we got a whole lot of inkers coming yeah, in. Yeah, right. 
But the first couple of pages are Mike Mignola. And, oh, okay. um, well, it, it, I, I'm seeing the credits are Mike Mignola, but that looks distinct. Yep. Like, like that, that heavier sort of shadows Definitely. in play. Um, and you almost wish that you would have more, <laughs> more of that um, consistently through. Okay, question for you. We're halfway Sir? through, and we're at an hour and a half. So I think we should probably split this one in two again. I'm I'm very much on board with that. Yeah, because I don't want to rush through the last these last several issues. That's for sure. These uh these issues lend themselves to great conversation. Yeah, and, uh, it'll be a f- another so I don't, full I, episode. I certainly wouldn't want to shortchange these particular issues. I'll get the reader comments that I didn't get for the first part, and we can talk about them in the second part. Fantastic. Fantastic.